Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Simon. And I'm Nathan. And today we're sitting down with Roger Carapin, professor of political science at Hunter College and the City University of New York Graduate Center. He's published widely on climate change policy and renewable energy policy in the United States, Germany, and Canada. His book, Political Opportunities for Climate Change, California, New York, and the Federal Government, won the Caldwell Prize for Best Book on Environmental Politics and Policy, awarded by the American Political Science Association. Professor, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. So to start this conversation, uh, I would just like if we could set the stage by uh, first having you explain what the climate policies are under the Biden administration. Okay, I can give you a brief overview. Uh, so basically, uh, we can think about it in terms of targets and in terms of measures to achieve those targets. So Biden has proposed a 50% reduction in U.S. greenhouse gas emissions from 2005 to 2030. That's now the official position of the U.S. government uh, as part of the U.N. process. In terms of measures to achieve, uh, there are congressional action and there's uh, executive actions. So congressional actions include the bills that you've been hearing a lot about in Congress lately, uh, the infrastructure bill and the House uh, budget bill that include a lot of money for things like uh, renewable energy tax credits and uh, electric vehicle tax credits and charging stations. The uh, executive actions mainly focus, the most important of them, there's actually a very large number, but there's a, the most important of them are the, the regulations of greenhouse gas emissions for motor vehicles and for the oil and gas industry and potentially for the power plant sector uh, coming from the Environmental Protection Agency. Do you think, is there a leader or a country that's the best model for climate change policy going forward? I don't think there's one best model, but there are a number of countries that have stronger, more effective, more stringent policies than the United States. Uh, Germany, the UK come to mind. Uh, so certainly there, the U.S. is not, um, would be treading familiar ground if it upped its uh, climate policy game to meet a more stringent standard. Uh, the the 50% reduction by 2030 lags behind the European Union as a whole, which has, I think, now a 55% target by 2030. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that in Western Europe, you can find lots of examples of effective policies. There are, for example, the European emissions trading system, which has recently found a way to stabilize its, its emissions price. And that price has now gone quite high. Uh, it's about 60 euros per ton. So that's providing a strong signal for investors to... Uh, transition from high carbon to low carbon forms of energy. Um, you've also written on the ambivalent effects of federalism on climate policy. In some instances, it may promote innovative energy policy. In others, it may endow fossil fuels with a veto power on uh, new regulations. So how do you anticipate that dynamic evolving under the current administration? Well, I, you know, I think that that, that um, Ambulance remains. I mean, I think we see that with Joe Manchin's role uh, in the current negotiations coming from a coal state uh, and strong ties to the coal industry. So we're seeing that he's definitely a break on climate policy. Uh, so you see that side of it. Uh, on the other hand, the, the leading role of California and the northeastern states in showing what can be done with climate policy targets and measures. The, the renewable portfolio standards that about 25 states have adopted that have helped to help to bring the new that that industry forward, wind and solar, uh, to the point where economies of scale have helped to bring down the costs um, per megawatt hour generated. So I think we see both sides of this, and it's it's uh, 
it's on a knife's edge right now in Congress, and we, we see the action of, of both the more more progressive climate policy states and the more um, oppositional or ambivalent in the case of, of Manchin. And considering that a lot of um, climate change policies are, are being enacted under the Biden administration, um, do you think that most of them are, are going to stay? Or um, let's say if, if Biden does not win the next election, um, are we going to see that there's going to be um, like take backs of, of, of policies that have been enacted? Um, do you think this is just going to be a cycle of going back and forth until um, we all just burn up one day, I guess? Uh, I definitely think that you know, eventually Republicans will gain the White House again. And when they do so, it's likely to mark an about face or a very large retreat from climate policy. I don't know if that's going to be four years from now or more than four years from now. Uh, so in one way, the answer to your question is, yes, there will be change again. Um, but there are some other forces that help to stabilize climate policy. We tend to give maybe too much emphasis on the federal level in the United States on this issue. Uh, states have been leading the way since the George W. Bush administration, and they are going to continue to do that. Uh, so that's one source of stability. Uh, and it interacts with the second source, which is big business. Uh, major corporations in very in a wide range of important sectors uh, have shifted toward acceptance or even support for climate policy in the last 10 years. So we see that in the oil and gas industry, even concerning methane regulation, but also potentially a carbon price. We see that in the motor vehicle industry with the shift toward electric vehicles. Uh, even electric utilities are more interested now in a, a national clean energy standard or some similar policy because they've had to cope with this at the state level. And they also, many of these corporations are international and they have to do business with countries of the European Union or with other countries in the world that have got uh, clearer climate policies than the U.S. federal government does. So they're likely to put the brakes on efforts to retreat by the next Republican administration. And so to kind of continue on that point about kind of the changing role of the private sector, how seriously do you take those commitments from oil and gas companies or car manufacturers? Uh, well, you know, I think that uh, they're, they're strategic actors. So they're, they're making these kinds of policy stands for a reason now. And the reason is, um, the timing is that there's a Democrat in the White House, the Democrats have control of Congress. They would rather influence these policies than have them imposed on them. Uh, so, I mean, that's part of an answer to your question. I think maybe maybe also embedded in your question is the, the, the thing I just said about carbon pricing and the oil industry. Uh, there certainly are reasons to, uh, I guess, uh, take with a grain of salt uh, the, the uh, statements by Exxon and others uh, that they now favor carbon pricing. The American Petroleum Institute is in favor of carbon pricing. This... Uh, I think they have mixed motives. I think they would like carbon pricing because it would help uh, carbon capture and storage projects. Exxon has a huge one planned on the Gulf Coast. Uh, there's another motivation too, which is to, to try to uh, avoid regulation, seeing carbon pricing as a better alternative regulation. And then there's a third cynical motive, which uh, you know has been there in the past and it seems to be there also now. Uh, which is that they think that carbon pricing has no chance of passing Congress, and it's a way to distract from other uh, other policies that might pass Congress. Uh, so I think it's really hard to disentangle those motives. Uh, Exxon and Chevron have come under pressure from activist investors recently. Uh, they may be, whatever their position on this was a year ago, 
or five years ago might be shifting as a result. And how much of, of um, a say in climate policy do you think the American public has? Or do you think it's more so um, like, sure, we can, we can uh, enact policy with our votes um, and our actions, but do you think it's, it's more so um, up to the government to uh, have the, the, the greater uh, push towards climate policy and climate change? Or do you think it's more so up to the hands of the people to uh, do their own part in fighting climate change? Well, I guess there are two issues here. One is sort of government policy versus voluntary actions, which I'm not sure if that's what you were getting at. And the other is to what extent policy really is influenced by electoral politics. So take the second one first. Uh, I think that this is an area where uh, voters t are usually lagging. Uh, if, you'll, if you look at public opinion on it, there, it's not usually a top-of-the-mind issue for voters, uh, for, for most voters. There's a small minority for whom it is. Uh, so I think there's been a lot of elite leadership on this issue, and they brought the public with them. Uh, but that may be changing for the Democratic Party uh, with the Sunrise Movement. Uh, in recent years, the, it seems that the party leaders have had to shift. Uh, it's now become a higher priority. It's about the fourth or fifth most important issue for Democratic Party voters. So the electoral connection may be getting stronger for, for one party. Uh, for the other party, for the Republicans, it's uh, if there's a connection there, it's a negative one, that their voters are, are hostile to climate policy. Uh, your other question about voluntary action, uh, you know, I think voluntary action can lead to a certain point, but there's a collective action problem. People will wait for others to take an action, and the, um, because they don't see that their own effort can make a difference they, uh, if, if others are not acting. And for that, we need governmental policy. We need compulsory, mandatory uh, policies. They can take a wide range of forms. They could take market-based forms like carbon pricing, or they could take regulatory forms. And there's also an important role for government, though, in, in providing information to help people make better decisions. The, the, the green consumer sector is important. It's one of, the, one of the factors that's been helping to shift business, I think, a little bit. Um, but um, we can't really consume our way out of this. We can't just find the right thing to to buy that will solve the problem, just like you can't find the right thing to eat uh, that will make you lose weight. It's really a matter more about quantity, uh, and quantity will require changes in technology, will require new investments, quantitative changes in our greenhouse gas emissions, and uh, those things will require coordination on a large scale. Business want business cannot do it by itself. It, uh, it'll need uh, mandatory government policies to create the right kinds of incentives. Um, as you mentioned, climate change like rarely registers as an important issue for American voters. Um, what can climate, climate policymakers do better to convince those voters that climate change is a really important uh, problem for the government to tackle? Yeah, I, it's a good question. I think that um, a lot more can be done about um, extreme weather events and other kinds of weather events, about making the links. Climate change impacts are are uh, being felt uh, in ways that can be, I think, help the public to understand that, that not acting is costly. Uh, so I say extreme weather events, but I don't really want to focus on that necessarily. I mean, the, the, the rising sea level is causing a lot of problems along the eastern coast uh, from, you know, from Virginia down to Florida. Uh, there's, there's, there's this rising nuisance flooding that occurs during high tides. Uh, that's an example of that people people are going to have to confront 
because properties are being stranded potentially, or large government investments will be needed in order to keep those properties accessible as roads get 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 flooded. Uh, that that interacts with an extreme weather issue, which is storm surge that cur- occurs in large storms. And um, how this is communicated to the public, you know, can we talk about climate change? Can we talk about sea level rise in uh, scientific terms? Or, or is there still a tendency to deny it um, and uh, to call it something else, to spend money to try to maintain the status quo without acknowledging that the, the long-term costs of that strategy? So I think I think that's a major area. I mean, it, that um, there can be different kinds of, I guess, messaging or a different kind of communication strategy. So just in just to continue off that, um, in speaking about the large scale, um, uh, like wildfires, uh, uh, rising floodwaters um, in the south and the east, um, a lot of these areas currently and will increasingly affect marginalized communities that um, not only will be unable to um, move out of the areas that are being affected, but are going to um, be disproportionately harmed in the effects of these um, these uh, climate disasters. Um, do you see any policies currently that are seeking to address this issue, or if not, what policies could be made to help these these communities? Well, uh, adaptation is not my main area of work, but uh, you know, I, and, I'm, and I'm based on the East Coast. So I'm less familiar with. The, developments here in California regarding wildfires. I mean, I think there's a lot of concern about uh, what's the best approach to wildfire management, to forest management, to wildland management here on the West Coast. Uh, and people are going to, I mean, in a way, it's the same structural problem that we have on the East Coast with, with flooding from storms uh, and from nuisance flooding, which is just how, how where are people going to live and how much are we willing to pay so that People can live in areas that they didn't used to live that are now express now exposed to these kinds of risks. They are always exposed to risk um, of these kinds of events, but those risks are rising, and they may be rising in unpredictable ways. Uh, so the National Flood Insurance Program has has been responding. There's you know there's been shifts, gradual shifts now in premiums. People are supposed to now pay higher premiums if they are actually in riskier areas. Uh, it's a very much a buffered kind of um, risk adjustment. Uh, the rates will rise only a certain, I think it's about 20% per year they can rise. And so it'll take many years before uh, many of these policies in the riskiest areas will reach uh, a more of a market price, uh, closer to a market price. So I, I think you have the same problem with the wildfires here in California. You have, you have a lot of houses, but also a lot of infrastructure that's cutting through areas because that was the um, that's the way it was done before the wildfire risk got so intense, and maybe you know I think it's going to cause more investment will be needed to to protect the uh, the transmission wires from from sparking I mean from causing fires in the in these areas, and you're going to have to rethink where people live, um, and and who's going to pay for it if they're going to be living and they're going to you know in areas where they might be exposed to this kind of risk and they need they need rescue or they need other measures that are costly, then who's going to be paying for that? What have been the biggest failures of outwardly facing climate policymakers in the past, and what do you think they have to do to fix those mistakes? The biggest failures? Yeah. Well, I think probably the biggest the biggest failure at the national level has been inconsistency in policy. It's been... You know, we had under Clinton, the U.S. signed the Kyoto Protocol, but the Senate never ratified it. Uh, Bush 
when he was running for president, said he would regulate greenhouse gas emissions under the Clean Air Act a few months after taking office. Uh, others in his party and in the oil and gas industry convinced him otherwise. Uh, so the U.S. never went that direction for the next eight years. Um, then, of course, after Trump became elected, we again switched. The U.S. came out of the uh, out of the Paris Agreement, uh, at least unofficially, and uh, the rollback of, of regulations. Uh, in other areas too, there's been inconsistency. I mean, in the, the tax credits for for wind power, for example, there was they were often expiring or almost expiring, and that created uncertainty in the industry. So, uh, to address those kind of failures, I think that what there needs to be uh, more of a consensus between business and government about the way forward. Um, so I think that although, uh, I mean, that would be a benefit of, of such a consensus, uh, that we would have a greater stability to policy. Uh, so I think that the, uh, the Biden administration is going to be torn um, for the, for in its greenhouse gas regulations uh, about whether to try a more ambitious approach that might uh, create an adversarial relationship with those who are being regulated. Or a less ambitious approach that will help to maintain comity and, and um, cooperation going forward. Uh, so I think that's a dilemma. I mean, whichever horn of the dilemma they take, there, there'll be criticism. Uh, so, Professor, um, you've been teaching for for how many years now at at Hunter College? Um, twenty seven. Twenty seven years, and in that time, uh, have you noticed um, a shift of, of if anything, in students' views on um, climate change or um, considering how several different administrations have uh, been in, in the White House during that time, um, how have you seen your students like um, uh, view the admi different administrations' um, policymaking in terms of climate change or uh, rather, how do you think the students' view is evolving on climate change over time? I, I think that the main, the main change I see is just greater interest. Uh, greater sense of urgency. Uh, and along with that comes uh, perhaps exasperation and discouragement, uh, other kinds of emotions that, that people experience around it. Uh, so, you know, I think that that's been a kind of a, a linear trend almost for the last 10 or 15 years. And I think that it parallels, uh, you know, what you see in public opinion, what you see in, in the news with the Friday for Future movement in, in Europe and the Sunrise movement in this country. Uh, so, and that, that seems to be a one-way street. I don't see that as a cyclical thing. I don't, I don't see a, a, another cohort coming along that's going to be less interested. Uh, I think even with the rise of other issues like Black Lives Matter um, or transgender rights, uh, which are, have become very important for younger generations, I, it, it seems like climate change is still up there as one of the top issues. To piggyback on that question, how has your view of climate changed? Climate change changed over the past 20 plus years of teaching? Uh, well, I've actually only been researching this area for about uh, 10 or 15 years. Mm -hmm. So my views have uh, shifted mostly because I started off working on Germany and then started working on the United States. Uh, so when I looked at German climate change policies, uh, I was initially attracted to the, the case because it's, it's a relatively successful one in terms of greenhouse gas emission reductions. Uh, and I tried to look at the, the structural reasons for that, but the, also the political processes that led to that result. Uh, and also at the, the weaknesses in German climate policy. So 
Uh, when I turn to the U.S. case, I think I, you know, this was a good country case to look at both strengths and weaknesses. And so my the book that I published a few years ago tends to emphasize the um, the strengths that that people may not be so aware of, but it also spends time talking about the failures. And so I think that probably the main thing that's happened for my evolution in thinking about this is that we really need to keep both uh, aspects in mind. We need to keep in mind uh, what works, uh, advocacy coalitions, windows of opportunity, uh, for example, um, but also what doesn't work, what undermines those processes. Uh, so the ways in which uh, entrenched interest groups uh, can block or dilute policy, uh, the spillover to other environmental problems, um, the windows of opportunity that opponents will use, uh, and that that uh, we need to keep both in mind. I mean, for there's been a tendency sometimes just to focus on one or the other. And so in my work now, I try to uh, bring together both um, and uh, so that we can have a, a more holistic view. And um, yes. Um, so as we were recording this episode, the 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference is occurring. Uh, can you give our listeners a bit of hope that the countries involved will actually will actually fulfill their commitment to ensure that the planet only war warms by 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2100, or is that wishful thinking? Uh, well, I, I, I can't really give you much reason for optimism about that. I, I, I can give you a slightly different perspective on this problem, mm -hmm. though. I think that um, we are, we are um, I think, likely to go past two degrees Celsius of warming, uh, and we need to think about limiting the damage. Uh, every, you know, every megaton of, of CO2 equivalent that's avoided is going to result in a lower temperature than otherwise would have occurred. And so for, you know, for a good long time, the two degree goal, the one and a half degree goal had been foremost in, in people's thinking about the issue. Uh, there is no, there's no magic number, of course, uh, could be higher or lower than that in terms of dangerous interference with the climate system. Uh, there are potential nonlinear effects. We're definitely running bigger risks of those as we get to higher degrees of warming. Uh, so I think that, you know, th th these goals are used to try to try to spur people to action. And that's that's reasonable enough. That's how people think about things. That's how you can motivate people. Um, but it doesn't mean if you miss the goal that all is lost. I think that uh, we shouldn't fall into dichotomous thinking about this. It, there isn't there isn't, you know, it's not complete success or complete failure. Uh, it's a somewhat arbitrary line that's been drawn. And unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. Uh, thank you, Professor Carapin, for joining us. Well, thank you, Nathan. Thank you, Simon. And to all our listeners, remember to stay hungry. Mm -hmm.